I love second-hand bookshops because there's not just stories in the books. The books themselves have stories. They can lead you to new and unexpected places, throwing you into the past or a multitude of possible futures. This adventure is a taste of one of those possible futures. And as with most of my adventures, it began in a second-hand bookshop. Whilst on holiday in the Northumbrian town of Anik, I chanced upon the remarkable Barter Books, an old railway station converted into a book nerd's heaven. Heading on a beeline for the science and astronomy section, I soon found a 1953 book called The Adventures of Space Travel, written by G.V.E. Thompson. Thompson was a chemist with an enthusiasm for space that eventually led him to be the president of the British Interplanetary Society. Although at that point, no one had actually journeyed into space, he laments that, if anything, there is now a danger that any sensational but impracticable scheme for space travel that receives a little publicity will be accepted as something likely to happen next year. Space hype was in full swing, but Thompson wasn't taken in by it. So he probably wouldn't be too impressed that the subject of this episode is most definitely a sensational and impracticable scheme. I couldn't help but be drawn to an intriguing chapter near the end of his book, boldly titled Methods We Can't Use to Cross Space. Near the beginning of that chapter, is a throwaway comment that piqued my curiosity. We can forget about the obviously useless methods, such as rafts towed by swans. Which begs the question, who thought that they could get into space on a raft towed by swans? The idea, it turns out, comes from what is considered to be one of the first works of science fiction, a book called The Man in the Moon. It was written sometime in the 1620s by an Englishman called Bishop Godwin, although the story itself is presented as the memoir of an adventurous Spaniard called Domingo González. On his travels, González discovers an island that is home to a strange breed of swans, with one clawed and one webbed foot each. Whilst living on the island, he wonders if the swans could be trained to carry a load. He begins to rear and tame them, and eventually achieves his goal. By tethering together 20 swans, he builds a flying machine, capable of carrying him across land and sea. This is the limit of his intentions, but one day the swans suddenly take off out of his control, with a course heading bolt upright towards the moon. Although it may seem fantastical, the story incorporates some pretty far-sighted ideas. Even the swans aren't as ridiculous as they first sound. Consider for a moment that planes and rockets had not yet been invented, and even hot air balloons wouldn't take to the skies for another century. Back then, more or less the only things that could fly were arrows, cannonballs and birds. If you compare the thought of being launched from a cannon versus being towed by swans, the idea certainly starts to look more sensible. Despite the unexpected turn of events, Domingo tells us that thankfully he is armed with true Spanish courage 
and he goes on to give a detailed account of his journey. First of all, he observes a strange effect on the flight of his swans. After an hour or so, I sensed that they were working less and less, until incredibly, they seemed to stop moving altogether. And there they stayed, steady, as if they'd been sat on perches. The lines they were towing slacked, and neither I nor my flying machine moved at all, but stayed, having no manner of weight. The idea of weightlessness is still captivating today, but it's common knowledge that things in space float. Back then, however, it was thought that all objects in the universe fall towards the centre of the Earth because that's their natural place, the Earth being the centre of the universe. After his experience of weightlessness, Gonzalez suggests that instead, heavy objects are drawn by a secret property of the globe of the Earth, like a lodestone draws iron to it. The phenomenon he describes sounds rather like gravity, an idea often attributed to a flash of inspired thought by Isaac Newton. This narrative of a lone genius doesn't quite add up, though, seeing as Isaac Newton wasn't born until 1643. Next, Gonzalez describes looking back towards the Earth. I kept the Earth in my view, and it seemed to be masked with a kind of brightness, like another moon. In the same way as we see spots or clouds on the moon, it was the same with the Earth. But whereas the spots on the moon never change, these on the Earth change little by little every hour. The reason I understand is this, that the Earth turns around on her own axis every 24 hours. I am now joined with Copernicus, in the opinion that the Earth has her own motion. So, rather than the sun and stars wheeling around the Earth once every 24 hours, Gonzalez is full of praise for Copernicus's idea of around 80 years earlier, that the Earth itself is turning. In fact, he doesn't seem to have a very high opinion of scholars of his own time, proclaiming that Philosophers and mathematicians, I think, should now confess the willfulness of their own blindness. They have made the world believe hitherto that the Earth has no motion. That said, he still makes a point of saying that he definitely believes that the Earth is at the centre of the universe, not the Sun, as Copernicus suggested. This isn't too surprising when we consider that the Inquisition had recently declared the idea of a sun-centred universe officially heretical. Bishop Godwin's contemporary Galileo didn't share the same caution, which soon got him into hot water for his Copernican views. So far in our journey, the whims of history have smiled on Bishop Godwin. It's easy to think of science like this tale, with better and more accurate theories replacing each old theory in the steady march of progress. But that's not really how things work. The history of science is a maze of creativity that rarely moves forwards in straight lines. As well as what might seem like far-sighted ideas, Godwin also makes some rather less accurate, but nonetheless imaginative, predictions. One is mentioned while he's busy chastising philosophers for their narrow-mindedness. Gonzalez bemoans, Is there one that hasn't hitherto believed that the uppermost region of the air 
is extremely hot, as told the natural place of the element fire. Looking back on his journey, he reports, I found the air to be of one and constant temper, without winds, rain, mists, clouds, and neither hot nor cold. This is an interesting take on what space might be like, and it isn't entirely wrong. Space certainly isn't full of fire, and doesn't have weather in the conventional sense. When it comes to what it is like, though, he's pretty far off the mark. Space is incredibly cold, at around minus 270 degrees Celsius. It's also sadly devoid of air, which wouldn't do either the swans or the rider of the flying machine any good. After 11 days, having left the Earth far behind, Gonzalez turns his attention to the moon. He describes the surface as being covered for the most part with a huge and mighty sea. This idea might sound familiar. The first Apollo astronauts landed in an area we still call the Sea of Tranquility. The odd thing here is that Gonzalez describes the dark parts of the moon as land and the light parts as an enormous sea, completely opposite to the parts we call seas today. For Godwin, though, an enormous sea in the light areas explained why the moon shines so brightly. He says rather poetically, the same splendour that appears to us on earth and gives us light by night appears to be nothing more than the reflection of the sunbeams on the water. And with that, our journey comes to an end. We've seen that the creative use of emerging scientific ideas in sci-fi can be a good predictor for times to come, as well as an amusing side note in the annals of progress. So I hope you enjoyed your trip to the moon, 17th century style. Don't forget to check out more episodes of Retro Space Time online at www.retrospacetime.wordpress.com or on SoundCloud. Till next time.